This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, our trip through the canon concludes. It's time for the two noble kinsmen. New plays and maidenheads are near akin, much followed both. That which rips my bosom almost to the heart. Our uncle, Crayon. He, a most unbounded tyrant. Yet we are prisoners, I fear, forever, cousin. I believe it. More buckled with strong judgment and their needs, the one of the other may be said to water their intertangled roots of love. What think you of this beauty? All right, as always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? Siri, set the timer for one minute. Your timer is set for one minute. All is rotten in the state of Athens, where a group of queens have come to plea for help in avenging their husband's death. War is declared on Thebes, and two cousins, Palamon and Archite, get swept up in the cause. Though they side with Athens, they are currently in Thebes and fight for Thebes out of duty. It's a bad idea. Thebes loses, and the cousins become prisoners of war. While in jail, they both spy the Princess Amelia through the window and fall in love with her instantly. Both decide they have a claim on her, even though neither have met her, and a bitter feud results. Archite is freed thanks to a relative who posts his bail, and though he is banished from Athens, he returns in disguise to woo Amelia. Meanwhile, the jailer's daughter has fallen in love with Palamon. She helps him escape to the woods, where he is discovered by Archite. They agree to fight for Amelia's heart, but they are caught by Theseus, lord of Athens, and are soon made to fight to the death. The winner gets Amelia, while the loser gets a funeral. Archite wins, but dies after being thrown from his horse. Palamon weds Amelia. Meanwhile, the jailer's daughter goes mad because Palamon doesn't love her, but a suitor pretends to be Palamon, and she marries him. All this is supposed to be a happy ending. Whether it actually is, is something I'll leave to you to decide. As with Henry VIII, it's largely agreed that Shakespeare had some help with this play, and he got it from John Fletcher. One still hopes that Shakespeare came up with the title, for there's a pleasing symmetry to the fact that the bard opened his career with The Two Gentlemen of Verona, and closed it, so far as we know, with these two noble kinsmen. It's not just that the titles echo one another, the stories themselves are also similar. The Two Gentlemen of Verona, if you can remember that far back to the very first episode of this podcast, concerns what happens when Proteus and Valentine, two best friends, find themselves in love with the same woman. Lo and behold, this happens again when Palamon and Archite fall in love with Amelia. In this case, though, there is none of that disturbing sexual assault to sully the story. Palamon and Archite live up to their names, noble to the end. They are as much concerned with honor as they are with winning Amelia's heart. Nobility is the theme of the day, and Shakespeare does get some credit for establishing it right from the start. Though Palamon and Archite hate Creon, they agree to fight for him because they believe it's their duty. Let him approach! But that we fear the gods in him, he brings not a jot of terror to us. Yet what man thirds his own worth at the cases each of ours, when that his actions dregged with mind assured, tis bad he goes about. Leave that unreasoned. Our services stand now for Thebes, not Creon. Yet to be neutral to him were dishonor, rebellious to oppose. Therefore we must with him stand to the mercy of our fate who hath bounded our last minute. So we must. All great heroes and anti-heroes play an active role in their own destinies. Hamlet chooses to avenge his father. Lear chooses to divide his land. Macbeth chooses to murder the king. They create their own fates with these decisions. Palamon and Archite are not anywhere close to being as exceptional as Hamlet, Lear, or Macbeth, but they do have a defining characteristic which proves to be their undoing. Macbeth succumbs to ambition, while the two noble kinsmen succumb to their own nobility. If they hadn't been so obsessed with duty, they'd have walked away from Creon when they had the chance. Instead, they fight and then become prisoners of war, or so we are told. 
One of the most disappointing aspects of the play's first act is that it doesn't take the route seen in Coriolanus and give us a juicy battle scene to start things off. The kinsmen are captured offstage, while we are forced to endure a very silly side plot involving Hippolyta, who we last saw in Midsummer Night's Dream. In this version, she is still Theseus's queen, and if you wanted to argue that this play was a sequel to A Midsummer Night's Dream, you wouldn't get any resistance from me. The storyline involving Hippolyta has little bearing on the story, other than serving as an excuse to bring Amelia onto stage. There's actually a very interesting attempt in The Two Noble Kinsmen to make Amelia into something other than just some prize that the kinsmen want to obtain. In the first act, she does what will someday become a trope of romantic heroines. She declares that she will never fall in love. What's unique is the way she does it, namely by hinting at a strong emotional attachment to her maid, Flavina. I was acquainted once with a time when I enjoyed a playfellow. You were at wars when she the grave enriched, who made too proud the bed, took leave of the moon, which then looked pale at parting when our count was each eleven. T'was Flavina. Yes. You talk of Pirithus and Theseus' love. Theirs has more ground, is more maturely seasoned, more buckled with strong judgment, and their needs, the one of the other, may be said to water their intertangled roots of love. Mm. But I and she I sigh and spoke of were things innocent, loved for we did. And like the elements that know not what nor why, yet do affect rare issues by their operants, our souls did so to one another. Not long after, Palamon and Archites by Emilia from their jail cell, and decide that they love her. If there's a reason why this play isn't often performed, it's probably this particular plot point, which is impossible to play with a straight face. Indeed, I've often wondered if this play was actually a failed satire. Based on The Knight's Tale from The Canterbury Tales by Chaucer, the story had been staged twice before, both in versions which have been lost to time. However, its popularity no doubt inspired this third version, and it's completely possible that the intent was to parody the conventions of the story. If this was the intent, however, it wasn't successful. In the end, the play comes across as being too earnest to ever be considered a true comedy. And yet, there remains some echo of the zany in the moment when the kinsmen spy Amelia for the first time and, without ever having spoken to her, begin arguing about who gets to claim her heart. What think you of this beauty? Tis a rare one. Is but a rare one? Yes, a matchless beauty. Might not a man well lose himself and love her? I cannot tell what you have done. I have. Beshrew mine eyes for it. Now I feel my shackles. Y you love her then? Who would not? And desire her? Before my liberty. I saw her first. Oh, that's nothing. But it shall be. I saw her too. Yes, but you must not love her. The two noble kinsmen doesn't have a lot of good things to say about the act of falling in love. There's a bitterness to the story in which duty and honor trump love and general decency. The women, Hippolyta, Emilia, and the jailer's daughter, are all objects to be claimed and married. There's nothing sincere in the love the kinsmen have for Emilia any more than there is sincerity in the love the jailer's daughter decides that she has for Palamon. That her love then drives the jailer's daughter mad actually strains credulity and is another example of how this play might be seen as a failed farce. 
Later, Emilia decides that she loves both the cousins, which is absurd because she's hardly spent any time with either of them. The play's entire ending is also absurd, with Amelia becoming engaged to Archite, who then dies, allowing her to blithely switch to Palamon. There's some attempt to play this transformation honestly, but I'm not sure there's an actress around who could actually do it. The jailer's daughter is equally abused, eventually ending up with someone who's only pretending to be Palamon, and these two elements, Amelia's trading of Archite for Palamon and the jailer's daughter trading of Palamon for someone pretending to be Palamon, are actually reminiscent of the bed trick, that vile plot point seen in Measure for Measure and All's Well That Ends Well. Now, in these cases, if you'll recall, sexual partners are exchanged without anyone being the wiser. Here, Shakespeare and Fletcher's message seems to be the same. The play suggests that in marriage, one partner is just as good as the next. This is a very unhappy message, and is probably one of the reasons why this is one of Shakespeare's least performed works. As mentioned, it's possible to play the whole thing as a satire, but I don't know if anyone's actually bothered to try. It's likely no one ever will. Like most of Shakespeare's later works, there's a lot of pomp and pageantry, but little in the ways of a strong central character. Henry VIII had the same problem, with the first three acts being devoted to Cardinal Wolsey and Catherine, and the rest being an entirely different play. A similar problem exists here, with Palamon and Archite both fighting for center stage as ardently as they fight for Amelia. Neither wins, and as a result, this play is a lesser beast. And now comes the part in the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've dis- Oh, wait, I can't. I can't do it. I, I can't discuss a film version of this play because there aren't any. There are no filmed versions of The Two Noble Kinsmen. That's right. Fun fact for you all, it's the only one of Shakespeare's plays which has never been filmed, not even by those stalwarts at the BBC. Now, there is an audio version from Archangel Recordings, which is pretty good, all things considered, and I'll leave links to the show page. However, don't think I'm just going to play the credits now and walk away. This is the last episode of the podcast, Shakespeare's favorite epilogues, and so do I. So allow me, if you will, to step out to the front of the stage and offer a few parting thoughts. Thus far, with rough and all unable pen, our bending author hath pursued the story. If we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended. It is ten to one this play can never please all that are here. I would now ask ye how ye like the play, but as it is with schoolboys, cannot say. So on your patience evermore attending, New joy wait on you, here our play has ending. A little more than a hundred years ago, in 1916, a woman named Elizabeth Friedman was hired by a wealthy philanthropist to engage in a unique bit of historical skullduggery. She was to help prove that Sir Francis Bacon had written Shakespeare's plays. The theory was that Bacon had hidden messages within the text identifying himself. Friedman proved especially well-suited to the job because of an innate skill with cryptography. Indeed, she became one of the earliest pioneers of American cryptography and would go on to play a crucial role in both world wars. And so we see just one of the many ways in which Shakespeare caused the historical road to diverge. If not for a millionaire's obsession with proving who really wrote Shakespeare's work, Elizabeth Friedman might never have had the chance to influence American cryptography the way she did. I haven't spent much time on this podcast discussing the Shakespeare authorship question, and I won't start now, other than to say I find the evidence unconvincing. However, the fact that the question has continued to hold our attention is something worthy of note. 
To this day, countless books have been written debating and debunking the myths of Shakespeare, and there remains a small but vocal minority who continue to be certain that William Shakespeare is a pseudonym for someone else. Why? Why do we care so much about who really wrote these plays all those centuries ago? Finding the answer certainly won't change anything about them. Henry IV Part I will still be a magnificent dramatic work. The Merchant of Venice will still be a travesty. Few, if anyone, debates the authorship of works ascribed to Shakespeare's contemporaries, yet Shakespeare has remained under attack since at least the 19th century. The reason, of course, has everything to do with his continued popularity. Shakespeare is attacked because Shakespeare continues to be studied and adored. His contemporaries have been relegated to the dusty corners of theatrical history, but Shakespeare is continually dragged into our classrooms, our theaters, our parks, our movies, and our books. Authors steal his plots, ballets adapt his stories, his words are everywhere. He invented over 1,700 of them, by the way, and he also gave us names like Jessica, Olivia, and Miranda. He remains high on the artistic pedestal, where his work is considered the height of artistic achievement. I can't blame people for trying to find some chinks in this incredible armor. After all, nobody likes a show-off. Anyone who is so universally adored is bound to attract some criticism. But while I agree with the sentiment, I don't agree with the method. As I said, finding out the truth about who wrote Hamlet isn't going to change Hamlet. It's the plays and not their author which we should continue to examine with a critical eye. We make a fundamental mistake in judging Shakespeare's work before we read it. Unfortunately, generally speaking, this is exactly what happens. When your teacher thrusts King Lear or Hamlet into your face, it is always with the caveat that they are doing so because these plays are great works of art. A similar sin is committed with regards to the so-called great works of literature. We are told what to think of these works rather than encouraged to form our own opinions. In doing so, we risk creating generations of parrots who, when discussing Shakespeare, simply repeat the opinions of those who came before them. This is the surest way to turn art into something stale. It's also the surest way to turn Shakespeare into something that is the domain of the elites. The implication is that only those who can afford to be educated about Shakespeare can enjoy him. I've started every episode of this podcast series with the remark that it is designed to get you excited about Shakespeare. This was the goal. The goal was never to get you to actually agree with my opinions. It was to get you excited about the idea of coming up with your own. I believe there's a Shakespeare play out there for everyone, even, dare I say it, The Merchant of Venice. As this series has demonstrated, the popularity of individual Shakespeare plays has waxed and waned over the years. In the 18th century, unaltered productions of King Lear was almost unheard of. The Winter's Tale, meanwhile, has come in and out of style almost with the tide. Every generation must read Shakespeare's work and decide for themselves what, if anything, speaks to them. The jury is forever out on Shakespeare's plays, and the verdict is something that we are always free to decide for ourselves. There are no right answers when it comes to Shakespeare's plays. Devoted listeners will know that my hatred for Merchant of Venice is clear, but others, though I don't know why, adore the play, and the truth is, is that we're both right and we're both wrong. That's the nature of art. I'm going to leave you with the only two rules you need to remember when going through Shakespeare's work. Think for yourself, and don't read the plays until after you've seen them performed. This second point cannot be stressed enough. Most plays are not literature. Most plays are written to be performed. 
I say most plays because there was a trend in the 19th century to publish plays before they went onto the stage. And if you encounter a play that falls into this category, then by all means, examine it as you would your battered copy of Howard's End. But Shakespeare's work was not published within his lifetime. His plays are blueprints. Dependent on actors, designers, directors, and even an audience to bring them to life. This is why so much of my examination of the various plays has been centered on story, character, and performance. It's also why I am unconcerned with the question of who wrote Shakespeare's work. These days, it doesn't matter who wrote them. What matters is how they are performed. Thanks so much for listening to Shakespeare Unbarred. All 38 episodes of this podcast were always available at my website, www.joelfishbane.net. And hey, while you're there, you can find out what else I do with my time. And you can also find out how to get your hands on a copy of my book, The Thunder of Giants. It's a novel about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world much too small to contain them. And it's available from St. Martin's Press. Pick up your copy today, preferably at full price. Now... I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair, unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardon be, let your indulgence set me free. Will Shakespeare as a play, let's go and cough through it.